2: And welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm Ananya Desai, and I'm here today with Aditya Ramanathan, research fellow at Takshashila. In today's episode, we will be talking about the policy of mandatory conscription, its trajectory so far, and what adopting or abstaining from it would mean for India. Now, India has never had conscription in its independent years, and joining the Indian Armed Forces has been voluntary. But Article 23 of the Constitution does allow the Union government to mandate conscription in order to secure the nation's interest and the public's broader well-being. But this constitutional loophole has not been brought into practice, not yet at least. Conversations about conscription in India were heightened after reports since 2008, which showed a lack of recruits for the army, especially those who were suitable to become officers. And this shortfall could arguably pose a national problem. So, Aditya, why do you think military conscription has not been mandated in India?
0: Uh, thanks, Ananya. Actually, uh, I think part of, there are a couple of reasons. One is a, a practical reason and, a, and the other is, is customary or historical. Uh, the historical reason is simply that India really doesn't have an experience of conscription. Really, I mean, so f- firstly, obviously, there have been forms of conscription throughout history in the past, in pre-modern in in, pre-mo- in the pre in pre-modern times, uh, mm. where, you know, for example, you had uh, sort of uh, taxes on, on on communities where, you know, they're supposed to send some of their young men, some portion of the young men uh, to serve with with some lord. Uh, but really, you know, conscription, as we understand it, starts with the French Levy en masse, 1792, the, uh, the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. At that time, India, you know, while the Levy en masse was going on, it had uh, three uh, armies, the Bombay... Madras and Bengal armies; uh, mm. these were all volunteer forces uh, in, in the three presidencies of the East India Company, uh, and you had various other armies, the Marathas, and so on. And all of these are based on on pay and and, and voluntary service, right? And uh, really, since then, India has never had any form of conscription, even. Uh, through uh, the First and Second World Wars, uh, you know, the sub- we've always had voluntary service. There have they've been inducements and sometimes social coercion uh, for people from certain communities to join uh, the armed forces, but we've never had uh, that national service. So while we have it, the provision in our constitution, uh, we don't have an experience of it. The second, I think, is, is simply practical. Uh, I don't think we see the need for it. I don't think we see that it solves the problems that we have. If you were to increase the size of India's armed forces, who would be the officers for them, right? I mean, we have a, a problem with, we have an officer shortage or officer recruitment problem, even with the voluntary armed forces that in India has at present. So where would you find those leaders? Uh, so I, I think there's, there's that's the practical issue. And, and I think those together explain largely why India doesn't have conscription. All of this can change the moment you have some major... Uh, national crisis, uh, where the existence of the state is itself at question. Uh, so, you know, that's that's why Article 23 exists. It's for those very rare contingencies.
2: You mentioned social coercion or persuasion. Uh, just a question, would you uh, attribute that to, say, NCC?
0: No, no, I, I meant it in the sense that uh, people would, for example, in the First World War from certain communities, be shamed into uh, volunteering for service, saying, look, everybody else from your village is gone, what are you doing there? right? But it's still, nobody's putting a gun to your head. It, it's still voluntary.
2: Okay, fair. Now switching from volunteer recruitment to conscription and vice versa, it's been quite rare around the world. Between 1969 and 2008, there have been 41 transitions to volunteer recruitment, but only 18 to conscription. What do you think could be the reason for this? I
0: mean, I, th- I think the reasons are broader historical trends, I mean, again, just to go back to what we talked about the origins of conscription, right? I mean, Transcription really begins in the form that we understand it today, uh, like I said, with the French Revolution. And I mean, if you read the original text, I I mean, I love this bit of text. It says, "Henceforth, until the enemies have been driven from the territory of the republic, the French people are in permanent requisition for army service. Uh, the young men shall go into battle; the married men shall forge arms and transport provision; uh, the women shall make tents and clothes and shall serve in the hospitals; the children shall turn old linen into lint; the old men shall repair to the public places to stimulate the courage of warriors and preach the unity of re- the republic and hatred of kings." Right. Uh, so, this is sort of the beginning of of conscription as we understand it, and uh, uh, really, once the French started issuing, you know, instituting national service in, in, in whatever form that it could, remember these, this is still largely a pre-industrial society, but in whatever form the state could institute it, uh, hmm. what you saw was that other states instituted in response, not Great Britain, but several of the other continental powers in Europe. And uh, really, uh, th- through the 19th century, uh, a lot of European countries had conscription on and off, so there would be times when they'd turn it off. Uh, but You know, it it was a normal form of mobilizing uh, the people for large-scale or what they would call general war. Now, uh, this obviously reached its peak uh, in the conflicts between 1914 and 1945. Uh, And in fact, uh, you not just needed conscripts uh, because you needed to increase, you basically uh, to you needed a large number of people serving at at one particular time, but it's also because uh, conscription was used to create a a large body of reservists. And so, you know, you would be uh, liable for service for one or two years and then you would be, for example, uh, you could be liable for conscription until the age of 35, 40, 45, you know, these rules kept changing. But basically the idea was that at a moment of crisis, you will have a large body of reservists uh, on whom to call upon. Uh, this started to change after 1945, uh, slowly. Uh, I think part of the reason is was simply uh, the international system at that time um, did not require or did not anticipate uh, large scale land wars. Um, the other reason is uh, social, which is that a lot of people were just fed up with uh, uh, national service and uh, you saw resistance to national service in the UK and of course, uh, in the US uh, during the Vietnam War. And connected to that, uh, I think there is also the, f- you know, uh, if you are, for example, uh, fi- fighting wars of, uh, you know, you know decolonization or you're involved in wars of choice like the U.S. was in uh, Vietnam, uh, you know, conscription becomes very unpopular. Conscription, you can get political support from, for conscription when there is widespread support for a particular war effort, effort when that consensus breaks down or mm. doesn't exist uh you are likely to see much less support for it and uh its it, states are in, in greater habit of using voluntary forces for you know these so called wars of choice and finally there are technological reasons uh the most obvious technological reasons are uh basically increases in mechanization and firepower uh the most dramatic example of firepower is nuclear weapons, uh, which can do a lot of uh, destruction that uh, would uh, in in previous generations require humans to do. Uh, But also uh, other types of long-range artillery, air power, all of these things were basically forms in which in warfare we started substituting labor for capital. Uh, And so that required, in general, uh, much fewer people. So, for example, Mm. when the Americans started, issued uh, this uh, threat of massive retaliation in the event of a Soviet incursion into uh, uh, Western Europe. Uh, By massive retaliation, they meant that they would escalate to nuclear weapons. Uh, Now, this was done precisely because the US did not want to expand its conventional forces at that time. Of course, the threat of massive retaliation didn't work and Americans had to invent something called flexible response and so on. Uh, You know, it's not so simple. But you can see how uh, a combination of uh, uh, you know the international system, social factors, and technology come together to uh, to basically make conscription both less viable and and much less popular.
2: And the idea of mandatory conscription, how do you think it impacts the effectiveness or the quality of the military?
0: Oh, absolutely, it does. Uh, the short answer is, is it does. You know, the uh, instructive example here is the United States, which after uh, it, you know. Uh, after the end of the Vietnam War in 1973, basically moved to creating an all-volunteer force. And uh, that all-volunteer force, you had much higher degrees of training, uh, you had uh, higher standards of recruitment. Um, and, uh, you know, this was needed because the U.S. military at that time was also embracing this major technological revolution that involved information technology, communications technology, precision-guided munitions, and all of this. So basically the idea was that you would have smaller number of highly trained people who were there in the military for a long enough time to both have the training and later gain the experience to use the machinery that they were using effectively. So uh, there's definitely been a transition from uh, quantity to quality in that respect. Now, This does vary and change in different time periods of human history. So, uh, you know, this isn't linear. We might, there might be a situation in which we might find humans going back to some form of national service. But uh, as of now, we are still very much in the era of, uh, you know, uh, of preferring a a smaller number of of well-trained and experienced people who know how to use uh, the complex systems that they operate. Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break.
2: mentioned before, Article 23 of India's constitution provides a clause allowing the union government to mandate conscription. Do you see this being implemented in the near future?
0: Uh, no, I, I don't. Short of a um, major contingency, at least I don't. Now, the kind of contingencies that India faces uh, are not don't necessarily require large numbers of personnel. So, for example, um, you have You know, you have conflict in the LOC with uh, Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan also has uh, entirely voluntary forces. In fact, the evolution of its armies is, of course, very similar to India. And, you know, uh, the armed forces actually of both countries have many commonalities. And so, uh, you know, you don't really need conscription with a Kashmir contingency. And even if you have a wider war, unless it involves in some way the fundamental security of the Indian state in a way which cannot be guaranteed through its other larger conventional forces and its nuclear forces, you know, in that case, you might find, uh, you know, uh, the need for national service. So, you know, just entirely wild Mm -hmm. speculation here. For example, if you have a massive systemic collapse in Pakistan Mm -hmm. uh, and you need large-scale intervention with boots on the ground from India, you know, that's the sort of case where in the future you might need national service. Uh, in the case of uh, China, you primarily have threats on uh, the border, which are uh, where you can't really deploy large numbers of people um, and you want to deploy machinery as much as possible. And you have a maritime threat and uh, navies and air forces don't really care about conscription because they want a smaller number of people who have training mm. and experience.
2: Okay, that, that's fair. Now, states with more consistent or intense threats to international security are more likely to impose mandatory conscription, like we see in South Korea. And this implies that the decrease in interstate war could help explain the decrease in conscription post-World War II and post-Cold War. Do you think the same logic can be applied to India with an aggressive China and an army-driven Pakistan as neighbors?
0: Uh, Again, I think this really depends on uh, where... um what happens to the international system and uh, what happens to India's uh, problems with these two countries, right? When I say the international system, I mean, uh, you know, you have had at least a period of decline of large scale interstate wars. And I I suspect that has a lot to do with, you know, the fact that you have, you had two superpowers, and now you have one major superpower and only one sort of rival China to it. Uh, If those circumstances change, you could very well see a, 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 a sort of a resurgence of interstate wars in the future, and we don't really know what form that will take. However, I don't see that happening in the immediate future, and I don't think that India's uh, problems with Pakistan and China as they stand today require, in any way, form, conscription. In fact, conscription would get in the way uh, of doing that. But yes, you know, there are countries for which uh, conscription or national service. Is useful. You mentioned South Korea; that's a perfect example. Finland uh, is another example. Uh, Singapore, uh, which doesn't necessarily have immediate threats right now, but it instituted national service in 1967, at least for uh, males, and uh, it, it that that continues to this day. Um, Switzerland is another example; doesn't face immediate or obvious threats, but uh, you know, national service is uh, again for males is is mandatory and uh, you know uh, the, again all of these countries are able to draw on a large number of reservists in the event that there is some some contingency in the future so i think for small countries uh, it's it is relevant and you know it is useful to have a large number of reservists and to have reservists you need to have some sort of national service so that people have some basic training and and know what they're doing but uh, for a country like india no, not at all. So in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite, right? So when the government introduced the Agnipat scheme, <clears throat> uh, at least anecdotally from every armed forces person that I've talked to about this, they're uh, opposed to it uh, because they believe it doesn't give enough time uh, for personnel to gain the training and experience they require to really do their jobs, right? So uh, we are very much in a world of uh, voluntary service uh, using highly trained personnel.
2: You know, we have this popular debate going around about whether we live in a multipolar world or we live in a bipolar world. Some would even argue it's unipolar because we have one state actor calling the shots. Which of these three do you think would mandate conscription the most?
0: Uh, I think, uh, you know, not a unipolar world uh, and not a bipolar sort of world, but I I think a multipolar world where where you don't have any major powers around. I think to my mind, that is... This, this sort of circumstance in which you are likely to see a resurgence in interstate conflict and uh, the need in some places for uh, pre-instituting national service.
2: Oh, that makes sense. Now, those proposing military conscription often cite reasons like national integration, discipline, unity, etc. What do you have to say about this?
0: Uh, so, I, I don't necessarily buy it. I, I think that uh, if you were to look at the experience of conscription in a lot of these, for these smaller countries, for example... Uh, you know, uh, that's not necessarily the reason they're citing. Uh, They're citing national security threats. They're not really talking about national cohesion. And uh, a lot of conscripts, you know, are naturally unwilling. You know, uh, if you talk to Singaporeans who have done national service, anecdotally, most of them will will make fun of it and talk about what a pain it is. Uh, So it doesn't necessarily do that. And uh, if you want to create, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, national mission or some sort of sense of unity, uh, you can create other forms of national service that don't have to be military. So, for example, uh, in the early 1960s, the Americans uh, started the Peace Corps, in which Americans could uh, go out for, you know, sort of gap year in college and and do some some form, some form of civil service in another country. And basically, the idea was that, uh, you know, you would make friends in those countries. It was a form of uh, civil or public diplomacy. Uh and, and, you know, I think that sort of national service or, you know, uh, being involved, for example, if you if you are skilled in something, if you're a civil engineer, being involved in uh, providing, uh, you know, a civil infrastructure uh, in, in rural areas, you know, that, that sort of thing, that sort of national service makes a lot more sense uh, than having, and, and, you know, people should be incentivized for that. Having that sort of national service. With not, not, not necessarily making it mandatory, uh, which is, I think, counterproductive, but uh, making it voluntary and giving people incentives to do that. I think that makes sense. Uh, I think it would you, you would be hard-pressed to find many people in the armed forces themselves who would support conscription uh, because, uh, you know, just finding the right people who, uh, who qualify uh, is hard enough in, in a country like India. And uh, the idea of increasing that recruitment base is not something that uh, most people in the military would welcome.
2: Within India, a popular argument for conscription is that it'll improve the patriotism or in nationalistic fervor in its citizens. Do you think this overemphasizes the role of patriotism in a civilian's life? Like, why do you think one necessarily needs to have this nationalistic fervor to be considered loyal to their country?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, th- this is obviously a, a political question. And, you know, there's some s- amount of subjective value judgment in this. Um, my view is that. I, I I don't think that military service by itself necessarily makes us more patriotic. Um, and I think there are other forms of service, like I mentioned, uh, that, that we can uh, look at. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, there are practical reasons why you don't want to necessarily have conscription. Uh, uh, you know, one re- factor that limited recruitment and conscription in uh, the 19th century in, in European states was, uh, you know, perceived political reliability. Now, th- these were obviously uh, authoritarian states, uh, which were obviously concerned about some populations. You know, uh, they believed, for example, people in urban areas to be politically unreliable, too infected by, uh, you know, uh, uh, too infected by socialist ideology and so on. Uh, whereas people from rural communities were considered to be simple and straightforward and patriotic and so on, right? Uh, so there, there will always be differ, differing perceptions about political uh, reliability. And I think that can get in the way of conscription. The other thing is that, you know, the other way it can be counterproductive is that uh, privileged people and people in uh, privileged positions of power and so on can always find exemptions for themselves. Um, it'll it'll be much easier for them to game the system, and uh, people who don't have that kind of social or political capital, or literally just capital, uh, may not be able to get themselves out of uh, a national service. So it, it can be seen as inequitable, and these don't increase patriotism; they actually can potentially decrease it, and it can actually decrease social cohesion, increase uh, fissures. The other thing is, I think in a diverse country like India, there are existing social uh, uh, and cultural and linguistic and religious fissures, and uh, you know, india's political parties have no interest in in papering over these or, or you know or reducing them they, they 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 survive and thrive by exploiting them uh, so uh, in those circumstances do you really want conscription uh, do you really want to train a bunch of people to uh, carry out organized violence when you have these divisions within your society
2: all right. Now, this is my last question for the day. Do you think that Indian military's technological advancements and capabilities have any impact on India's policy or stance on conscription?
0: Absolutely. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, one of the reasons that people from the armed forces, rightly or wrongly, oppose the um, Agnivir scheme is is precisely because they believe you don't have give people enough time to train and gain experience in using high-tech platforms, high-tech weapons and so on. Uh, and absolutely that that makes a huge difference in how the military sees the value of conscription or rather why it doesn't see a value in it and uh, given the fact that india is likely to you know its aspiration at least is to move to theater commands and to you know potentially increase the budgets of its air force and its navy uh, i see very little demand side from the military for uh, expanding the base in fact if anything uh, most people in in the other two services besides the army would actually like uh, the number of uh, overall number of personnel in the Indian armed forces to go down.
2: Yeah, you also mentioned that um, the military would prefer to put machines rather than officers, like in areas of border conflict.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, you know, in so for example, in, in the border in the Himalayas, you do want to automate as much as possible, right? Because that's not a hospital and hospitable environment. You, it it takes a lot to support are people in in a remote area. Uh, So, you know, in general, the armed forces will welcome automation.
2: All right. Um, Thank you so much, Aditya, for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. And I think it gives a pretty holistic view of what conscription would mean for India, why our policy is the way that it is. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we will see you in another episode of All Things Policy.
1: If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashila.inst or our website takshashila.org.in.